Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week we're talking about whether Vladimir Putin can survive. Two weeks on from the mutiny by the Wagner Group and Yevgeny Prigozhin's challenge to the Russian leader, we've seen a flurry of activity by Putin to reassert his authority. Russian history, however, is replete with leaders who appear unassailable right up until the point when they're not. So we're going to talk about whether Putin's grip is weakening and how might Western governments react if he does appear to be falling. And then the second thing that we're going to be looking at is the NATO summit in Vilnius next week. As we discussed at our big annual London conference last week, the way countries work together, multilateralism in the awful jargon, is being challenged everywhere and the NATO alliance is no exception. With Turkey showing no signs of budging on Sweden's membership, Ukraine not likely to be offered membership anytime soon, and infighting over the who the next Secretary General might be, can the alliance actually rally together next week? Joining me to discuss this is a terrific panel. First, I have Tobias Elwood, MP. He's the chair of the UK Parliament Defence Select Committee. Welcome. Hi, good to see you. Very good to have you here. And joining us down the line from Berlin is Polina Ivanova, a foreign correspondent for the FT covering Russia, Ukraine and Central Asia. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Very, very good to have you too. And finally, from New York, where it is very early, it's Mark Temnicki, Ukrainian journalist and associate fellow with the Atlantic Council. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me. Great to have you all here. Let's start with this question of Vladimir Putin. It is a long two weeks past this extraordinary mutiny. Things apparently much more quiet now. Polina, perhaps you can start and tell us where you think it is now and where Vladimir Putin's control over Russia now is. Yeah, I can't believe it's been two weeks, actually. It feels um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for everybody covering it, that's for sure. Including the person we're discussing. Yeah. Um, total total madness in, in the past two weeks. Um, where is Putin's control over Russia? It depends what we mean by that, right? If we are talking about his control over the system, over the elite, over his institutions, the one thing that we can definitely take away from this quite easily is that his prestige has taken a huge hit. And the sense of him as an all-seeing, sort of all-powerful leader, the sense of Putin's invincibility, the kind of inevitability of him as the ruler of Russia for, you know, two decades and and more in future has taken a massive hit. Um, the coup, uh, the armed uprising took the Kremlin off guard, uh, caught the Kremlin off guard. It caught state media um, off guard and you could see a total mess in how they were reporting on the day. Um, they were not on message. Everything was all over the place. The whole system was in shock. So that is significant for a system like Russia's, Putin's, um, you know, ability to hold it all together rests largely on on his reputation, and that obviously um, he's shown a lot of weakness, and that has um, it creates strains in the system. The two kind of key sort of pillars of it, the propaganda and the security services, both showed weakness. Both uh, looked um, pretty flimsy on the day, which um, which is very significant. If we're talking about his control over the public, um, that's a very different matter. Um, people were aware, the Russian people en masse were aware of what happened um, on the day. Um, they know about the mutiny, they've seen Putin's response, but there is largely, um, you know, people want stability. They prefer the kind of, by, by virtue of inertia to continue 
with the system as it is. And, you know, the lack of alternatives to Putin is also significant for them. So, uh, you know, whether Putin still has Russia behind him, um, that's a very different question. And, you know, as I said, by inertia and by people's like desire for stability, what they want is their paychecks to be paid and their pensions to be raised and, and for that all to continue functioning. And the best bet for that to continue functioning remains Putin. Let's just pause that for for now and hold that thought. Tobias, what do you think of the way that the UK responded? Obviously, it had to say that it doesn't get involved in such internal things. Um, But there there has been a lot of discussion of what the UK might do if Putin looks like uh, his position is being weakened. Yeah, I mean, there's because of Ukraine, we've suddenly learned a lot more about Russia's intentions and perhaps uh, surprise maybe that uh, Putin has had this interest in in uh, expanding uh, his influence in the sort of Slavic region of Europe actually you look back in Russia's history this is nothing new the it's been a tendency to to want to attack rather than defend it's uh, I always use the analogy with the the risk board if you play that game risk green is really hard to defend the best way to defend it is to attack and go back to Ivan the Terrible. You know, the the great leaders have learned this. It's also very clear that in order to be leader in Russia, you need to look strong. You need to look infallible. You need to walk or, you know, uh, go around on horseback, bare, you know, topless, uh, to show that uh, you have a strength of character. And as soon as cracks appear, as soon as you look vulnerable, then I'm afraid the Kremlin starts to get twitchy and uh, perhaps look for a replacement. And uh, as Polina was saying, uh, you normally crush your enemies. You normally you know, lock them up or they get somehow mysteriously thrown out of a window. What you don't do is offer somebody who's on charging up the main motorway to Moscow, manage to sort of quash the, 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 the rebellion, but then offer the leader uh, exile in another country. That simply is not heard of. And the fact that we're now in this position, absolutely right for the West, to remain silent. But of course, we are looking through this prism um, from Ukraine's perspective, huge opportunity as generals are arguing with each other to leverage this distraction to their own advantages. That is part and parcel of what war is all about, seeking opportunity when your enemy is looking elsewhere. So Mark, let's pick up the point that Tobias has just been making about whether Ukraine can use this new doubt that has come in about whether Putin can survive. Uh, everything is hanging on this counteroffensive at the moment and the success of it, and we know it's, it's, it's been quite difficult going. What can you tell us about whether this has helped the counteroffensive and how that is going? It has distracted the Russians and that President Putin and his regime have tried to deal with Wagner, and for now they have somewhat cast them aside, but they also understand that Wagner was a big part of their role in eastern Ukraine, trying to take over places such as the Bakhmut area, etc. Et so they really do rely on Wagner soldiers for Ukraine. In the meantime, while this coup was occurring, they claimed more territory in the south and east. So the counteroffensive has been very successful, but they are running into some delays which were expected and that the Russians have a very vast military and they're trying to hold their ground in the occupied parts of the south and the east. And what is the significance if the counteroffensive gets stuck? What do you think it's going to do to Ukraine's ability to get support? I think for now, the last 18 months, the Ukrainians have shown true resilience and grit and that they will do anything and everything that they need to do in order to defend 
their country. And that has helped over time show Western allies and partners as well as other parts around the world that Ukraine is worth fighting for. Ukraine wants to do this. And as a result, slowly, they are unlocking new weaponry that they're being allowed to use during the war. President Zelensky recently said that he wishes that this aid had come sooner because it would have assisted with the counteroffensive sooner. But we are where we are, and they continue to push forward. Polina, what do you think is going to happen with the Russian offensive at the moment? We've had this shock to Putin, but these key months when the world is watching to see whether Ukraine can really make some kind of advance. Do you think it's it's back to business as it was with Russia and its military? I don't disagree that they're distracted and that there's internal squabbling. We hear reports of uh, interrogations within the security elite, within the head of the army, as the kind of Kremlin does move carefully, but to look at um, who was disloyal or who may have been disloyal or who may pose a risk in future. So there is some uh, internal instability on that front. Whether that's affecting the command lines is clearer for you know Ukraine to see than, for, than almost from the Russian side of things. And we have heard from some Ukrainian generals immediately after the uh, mutiny that you know it hasn't affected Russia's ability to hold its lines um, for the time being. So uh, what, of course, is very significant is is taking Wagner out of the Bakhmut battle and just out of the front line in, in general for the time being. Again, we don't know if they'll return. We don't know whether the militia will be reintegrated in some way. Their future is still being negotiated and decided in the, in the Kremlin and between the president of Belarus and, and Putin. So we don't exactly know what that picture will look like, but it's still affecting uh, morale, of course. There's no way that soldiers do not recognize what's going on. Um, for many, Prigozhin was a very kind of helpful pressure valve. He released uh, a lot of the anger that people feel about how the war effort is being run on the Russian side in terms of disorganization, corruption, and general dysfunction of the armed forces. Um, Prigozhin's constant criticism of this was obviously, you know, a lot of people uh, agreed with it, even if they were not ready to necessarily kind of rise up against Moscow uh, with him, there was still a lot of support. So of course it affects morale as well. Whether that translates into actual kind of losses on the front line, we're not seeing that at the moment so significantly and Ukraine will have a better sense of that than um, than Russia per se but in the same way where we were talking about the kind of weakness and the strain in the system as a result of weakness that Putin has demonstrated in this as a result of this mutiny that also you know I just qualify what we were saying before you know that does not necessarily directly translate to some change of leadership, you know, Tobias mentioned that the Kremlin could remove him. I would, I would push back on that and say that there isn't a Kremlin that exists separately to Putin that can, that can, you know, step in and remove him and 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 change these marionettes around and that kind of thing. So I would be, I would be careful there. But um, yes, uh, this mutiny affects morale, it affects the army's structure, and it may play out on the front line as well. Thank you for that, Tobias. How do you think Britain should prepare for? an aggressive Russia under Putin or someone else on Europe's eastern border? These are the questions, I think, that are going to dominate uh, Vilnius, uh, the, the NATO summit. Uh, one of the reasons why I think Russia and Putin has advanced into Ukraine and indeed other authoritarian states have, have perhaps gone on a bit of adventurism is because of an inherent weakness of the West, of what we believe in, what we stand for, what we're actually willing to defend. It's taken a bit of a while for us to 
pluck up the political courage, for example, to send tanks to Ukraine. And uh, what we are now recognizing is that we've entered a new era of insecurity, not just Russia, but you've got to put into context Russia's relationship with China uh, as well. The fact that you have a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council able to, without challenge, invade another member state of the United Nations, endorsed you know, in a way by a second permanent member, China, and then the other three permanent members, France, Britain and the United States, not clear on then how to manage this. It shows you how fragile our international rules-based order has become. So how we handle Russia and Putin, mm. there are bigger questions as to what we are doing on the international stage to shore up um, errant states. Uh, we've become complacent since probably the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think the, the turning point for me was Afghanistan when we abandoned this country to the very insurgents we went into defeat. And that gave the signal to people like Putin to say, I can wander into other countries. I can expand my influence uh, unimpeded. And even today, you know, NATO, the most potent military alliance the world's ever seen, is still formally sitting on its hands. It's unable to step in in any form because, of course, the consensus of Hungary and Turkey, uh, which will hold uh, it back. Talk of, you know, Ukraine joining NATO uh, at the Vilna summit. I mean, it really is an interesting discussion. We are coming on to this discussion in just a moment. Everything to do with NATO uh, and Ukraine and, and, and Sweden. But I just want to press you on the point that is endlessly controversial about whether Britain itself, as part of what it does in these multilateral alliances, needs a bigger army. And this is um, a, a perennial. Yes. I mean, th- this is uh, it sort of fits in with the next sort of step. So if the world is going to is entering a period of instability. Last Cold War, we were at 4%. We're still in a peacetime 2%. And we're expecting ever more of our army, our air force, and indeed our navy. And I'm glad to see us pluck up, you know, some international statecraft, which perhaps has been missing, you know, arguably since that Brexit vote. Uh, We're now playing a role on the international stage. We're helping to bring nations together. We're helping to lead. You can only do that if you have the hard power. And as you uh, imply, that requires greater investment um, in our armed forces. Thanks very much indeed for that point. A clear, a, a clear vote for more investment in the, in the, in the British Armed Forces. Uh, Mark, I just want to ask you before we turn from this, this question of where we are right now, whether you think the relationship can ever be healed b- between Russia and Ukraine or whether what Putin has done really leaves Ukraine emphatically looking westwards? I think it's the latter. Uh, despite the fact that Russians like to say that they're our brotherly neighbor, you don't kill your brothers, you don't you know, murder your brothers, invade, etc. And this has been coming for a while. When former Ukrainian President Poroshenko was in charge, he, in addition to parliament, sought out methods to help Ukraine become part of the West. So they rewrote their constitution specifically stating that Ukraine wants to be part of the European Union and NATO. And as we've seen over time, there have been rapid advancements in in that while Ukraine was being invaded, it was recently granted candidate status in the European Union. And they're pursuing government reforms and the European Council has commended Ukraine on numerous occasions saying that despite the war, the country is reforming, it's implementing. Yes, you know, still a long way to go, but the 
Ukrainian government now states that it recently completed seven recommendations listed from the European Union that will be reevaluated, and we'll we'll see how that proceeds forward about Ukraine truly becoming part of the European Union, which prior to the war was something not fathomable, right? It was usually dismissed about Ukraine being part of Western institutions. And now we are seeing over the last 18 months that Ukraine truly is a country that can contribute to Western ideas and institutions, etc. So it's just remarkable to see where we've come over the last year and a half. Okay, we really are coming on to that question of whether it can be part of the Western institutions. But Polina, I wanted to ask you just finally, um, Prigozhin himself, um, he appears to have accepted this uh, this uh, exile to Belarus. Should he expect a long and happy life? Well, we just had great comments from uh, the Belarus leader, Alexander Lukashenko, saying um, that Putin is not so malicious as to whack him. And that's the uh, uh, technical term, I think. What will happen to Prigozhin, hard to know. But um, he appeared in Minsk, apparently. Lukashenko spoke a week ago that he had appeared in Minsk. Now Lukashenko says that um, Prigozhin is in St. Petersburg and maybe in Moscow. We've seen his private jets and planes fly all over the place. Um, So it's really unclear the uh, a Telegram channel closely associated with Wagner was posting pictures of a camp, a tent camp that was being built in Belarus. The Belarusian leader today said no tent camps are being built. Um, what will happen next? Very hard to know. Um, we have been contacting Wagner recruiters across Russia and speaking to them. Their recruitment process continues and they say, you know, ignore the news. Everything is carrying on as normal, maybe with a few changes. Um, What that means, again, we don't know. I think it really is the case that the future of Wagner is being worked out as we speak um, somewhere in the corridors of power. We know that Russia has spent a huge amount of government money on maintaining Wagner since 2014. They've spoken about this publicly now after years of denying it even existed. What was what was the uh, the significance of that, the point of that, of Putin saying, actually, yeah, uh, for, despite years of denying uh, any support, any connection with this group, I now say that I have spent this vast amount of money on it. Why? Um, partly to take on its victories. So Wagner was the only successful entity on the front line since April 2022 for Russia in Ukraine. So by saying that actually we were funding it and actually we were running it, it takes away that kind of notion that Wagner was the only thing that could, you know, existed on its own and, you know, was able to be successful while the rest of the Russian army is inefficient. It also allowed Putin to make a second claim, you know, how to tear down your enemies, according to the Kremlin playbook. One, call them a traitor and B, call them a thief. And for Prigozhin to be a thief, he needs to have taken government money. So Putin was able to claim that Prigozhin had enriched himself and, you know, look, he presents himself as this kind of fighter against corruption, but actually he's uh, been enriching himself all along uh, using government funds. Yeah. And we could do a whole program, I'm sure, on Wagner finances and uh, how much it's got out of uh, Africa. But we're not going to do that. We are going to turn to this question of NATO. And Tobias, I want to start with you, but I'm thinking as, as, as we make this turn in the, in the program um, that people have been writing, I'd actually include myself in that, about whether NATO is going to survive and thrive for years and years. I remember a particular low point during the Iraq war when uh, George W. Bush and Tony Blair seemed to have taken all the oxygen out of the NATO room by their, their own talk about the, the Iraq war. Um, what are you expecting from the Vilnius summit next week? Yeah, it, it is a big question. There's no doubt about it. You look at NATO and it's it, it's had a troubled history, a very clear 
intent when it was formed because there was a single adversary. The Cold War made it very clear cut. There was then wandering into Bosnia, which was not brilliant. It took the Americans again to come back in and help there. Then we wandered outside, off-piste, if you like, in Iraq, uh, in, in Afghanistan. NATO operations, which did not go well. President Macron called NATO brain dead. Uh, what we've seen with the advance of Russia, the more aggression, is it rekindle a sense of purpose, which is good. The limits, as I touched on before, the constraints of NATO is that it now is very clear. If you're inside the club, fantastic. You're going to be protected. You're going to have all the needs the requirements are there to shore up your security. If you're outside the club, sorry, but we're no longer able to, to provide you any assistance. And that's the limits of the consensus-driven structure that you have in NATO, which means, you know, looking around the world, instability, other nations will be looking at this and say, you either go down the Israel model, for example, and you really shore up your own defenses, you become such a porcupine, you get nuclear weapons, or you join a major military alliance. But such is the world becoming so dangerous that this is what, what you're required to do. There is a awkward question for NATO as to what to do about Ukraine. As I, as I mentioned, they are limited in what they can do. It's NATO countries that are utilizing their friendships and so forth, the Ramstein discussions, how to get weapon systems there. Yes, they've upgraded. Yes, they're developing um, better procurement systems, uh, ra increasing the size of their rapid response forces. But ultimately, they're still left with this fundamental question. If it's outside of the NATO club, are they going to come to the rescue of anybody? Yeah, a very good point. And you've got the US's constant pressure for uh, all the other members of NATO to pay more into it and something that is, um, it, again, it's a perennial, but has really got some heat behind it now as the US questions in more or less any political incarnation, whether it wants to be supporting foreign uh, military action and so on. Do you think countries are responding to that pressure to pay in more? I think they are. Uh, uh, we just touched on it. Britain needs to lead by example. I've encouraged all nations now to meet what the Baltic nations are doing and move to 2.5%. Otherwise, you simply will not be able to have the advance of, of your conventional capabilities. And now don't forget the character of conflict has grown to include cyber and space as well. And uh, it's not also just what perhaps crudely you put, you know, war fighting against military might either side of an iron curtain. There's the disruption, for example, of Nord Stream 1. Great example of how you can cause massive economic harm by undersea cables and so forth. Actually, the Novichok poisoning in Salisbury is another great example. We, yes, we prided ourselves on being able to identify the people, the military-grade substance and so forth, but that costs hundreds of millions of pounds to Salisbury's um, tourism. And all this was on the flip side were two individuals and a little bottle. And the disruption that caused was huge. So that shows you where perhaps the, you know, the disruptive capabilities of nations can go if they're determined you know, to cause harm. And I'm going to give a nod to the Bellingcat website, which helped identify those two GRU operatives. Mark, let's come to the central question, which you raised before, of what Ukraine expects next week. And expectations are very high, aren't they? Uh, it wants some sign that NATO will embrace it. I think that they will continue to see Western 
members and, and NATO allies agree upon new forms of assistance and defense aid to Ukraine. President Zelensky has stated on several occasions that if there are no serious discussions about potential NATO membership, that he will not attend the summit next week. And I think the Ukrainians are trying to be realistic. President Zelensky recently gave an address to Ukrainian parliament, Verona Rada, where he stated that he understands that in NATO there's a clause saying that you can't join the organization if there's an ongoing war or a territorial dispute. And he said, we understand that. We want to know after the war is done, where does our place stand? So I think that the Ukrainians are still optimistic and believe that there will be some sort of partnership in the future. And there are some signs. Ukraine recently became a member of the cyber center that, that NATO runs, which is promising signs that the Ukrainians and, and NATO are having stronger relationship. But I think for now, it's business as usual and, and seeing what types of additional assistance the Ukrainians can receive while they're defending their country. You're, you're describing it in a very practical way. Um, but I'm wondering whether you think President Zelensky has got himself in a bit of a trap uh, he's raising expectations at home. He, uh, he's indeed raising very successfully pressure on uh, NATO, on the European Union. But supposing there isn't the admission the, uh, by NATO and the EU of, of Ukraine or there isn't moves to that, is he in a very difficult position of trying to explain to people at home that the reward is not going to come? I don't think so, because I think for Ukrainians, they understand these difficulties in that Ukraine is doing everything it can to try to pursue potential membership with NATO. But, you know, the 31 countries and hopefully with Sweden joining 32 have to make that decision ultimately. And as the Ukrainians are aware, countries such as Hungary are disputing certain matters and, you know, they're, they're handling that on the side. Listen, you know, pursuing these types of memberships is very complicated because there are several countries involved, different ideas and political thoughts, etc. But something like that would serve in President Putin's hand, I believe, in that hypothetically, if the countries in NATO say that Ukraine should not become a member, then Putin can argue, look, you know, the West has abandoned you. They don't want you part of your institutions. And and that makes things more complicated, unfortunately. Paulina, you're nodding. How do you see this uh balancing act um, for President Zelensky, but also for NATO? Well, I mean, Russia's reaction is always going to be negative and it's always going to find a way to spin the situation to its own message. If there is movement to embrace Ukraine, to bring it closer into NATO in one way or another, give it kind of assurances or pledges for the future, Russia will most likely present that as justification of its war, because this is, you know, what it was speaking about back in January 2022. This is the kind of European security architecture that it was saying was not in Russia's favor, NATO expansion, and and so on and so forth. You know, setting aside that the greatest kind of security risk to the European continent is Russia itself, and causing the the actual land war that is that is happening. Setting that aside, Russia will um, react in a way that says, you know, we were we were justified. Um, this is what we what we were expecting anyway, and NATO was going to attack us, and hence we had to launch our so-called special military operation against Ukraine. And if nothing happens and Ukraine doesn't move closer into NATO's orbit, it will also present that as a sign that the West just uses Ukraine as a proxy for its war against Russia takes everything from Ukraine and gives nothing in return. And look, the West is a false partner to Ukraine and uh, and, and gives it nothing. So you know, it's hard to win with, with that kind of rhetoric. 
You sound like someone extremely experienced uh, in such rhetoric, anticipating, I'm sure accurately, how the Kremlin might then play that. Tobias, how is NATO going to handle these things? We have the Swedish question, uh, whether Sweden can come into NATO. Turkey is still raising uh, questions about that. We have this pressure from Ukraine and the dilemma that um, Mark and Polina were just describing. How is NATO going to handle this? I think because we've seen a delay in Sweden, gaining membership, which is so obvious. There should not be any bumps in the road for that. And yet Hungary and Turkey have both played silly billies here. It shows the limits of what NATO can achieve politically. The fact that there is far from alignment as to where they want to take this organization. The idea, therefore, that Ukraine could somehow be fast-tracked is simply not going to happen. I'm very pleased that we're having this debate because ultimately I want to see Ukraine mainland be under the umbrella of both the EU and NATO. I think that's the long-term objective. It's not going to happen anytime soon. And if Sweden can't get in, then we should stop pretending that somehow Ukraine is going to get a fast track. I was at Globsec, a conference in Bratislava, where the Georgian prime minister actually said the, the reason why Ukraine was invaded was because of the expansion of NATO. This is a prime minister from a country that's had two chunks taken out of it by Russia. And you can see that there are still countries that believe this might all end up as a frozen conflict. Putin will survive. And these Eastern European countries may need to tap into oil and gas. Look where Slovakia may go in September. They may end up looking more Eastern than, than Western as well. So the politics of this is very fragile indeed. My answer is actually to invite Poland and Ukraine to join the joint expeditionary force. This is a NATO-like group of members, 10 nations that look after the high north. It's NATO standard, and there's no questions. They're all hard leaning into defense, strong on Russia, with no quibbling uh, about you know, a membership for Poland and, and Ukraine. That, for me, would be the lily pad, the stepping stone to get into some form of security guarantee that they need uh, with seeking eventual membership of NATO. Well, we're going to have to come back to all these questions, um, even as early as next week when some of them comes up. But you've all been really very eloquently describing these dilemmas and the difficulty of the politics of NATO. And it is not uh, going to be the first or last time. But I'm going to have to stop at that point. And so thank you all. Tobias Elwood, MP, Polina Ivanova, Mark Temniki. Do follow them all on Twitter. The links are going to be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe, and please do leave us a review. And to read more from our experts or find out about our many events, or become a member, and we'd really love to have you, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, where you can follow all of our programmes. Well, that's goodbye from me, Bromwyn Maddox, here in London. Thank you for listening and joining us. 